Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. And today we continue in our brief uh, discourse aside on uh, the Holy Spirit uh, that corresponds to my book that came out relatively recently through Seedbed, The Holy Spirit, and Introduction. So today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. It's probably the most... um, Difficult is the word that comes to mind first, um, part of the study that we need to go through, but it, it, it doesn't need to be difficult. And remember, part of this book is to make this content accessible to a, a, a broad uh, audience of readers. So um, the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, it requires us to first get a grasp on at least the fundamentals of the Trinity and then understanding the Holy Spirit within. So um, we'll start this way. In, the, in Luke 24, um, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, it tells the story of two men walking to a village uh, called Emmaus, and they're discussing the death of Jesus. And Jesus, in his resurrected form, uh, comes to them, and they don't realize that he's resurrected. And he asks them what they're talking about. They say, well, have you, haven't you heard that they've killed this man that we thought was the prophet from, for Israel and from the line of David? And, and, um, and then Jesus, it says, explains to them the text of the, of the scriptures, beginning with Moses, and how they speak of him. Now, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit and the Trinity? Well, um, Jesus is saying that the Bible is all about him, that essentially the Bible points to him, to his coming as the incarnate God. Uh, for the redemptive act that he performs for humanity, to restore them from their state of fallenness, to help uh, to restore the image of God as God intended it in humanity. That's, that's what the Bible's all about from beginning to end, is Jesus. And this is what we call the basis of a Christocentric hermeneutic, or a Christ-centered reading of Scripture that all points to Jesus. Now, if the book is all about Jesus, the question we have to ask is, well, who inspired the book? Who wrote the book? And the answer to that question is, well, of course, the Holy Trinity inspired the book, but the Holy Spirit was a key agent in the inspiration of the writing of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all the Scriptures are God-breathed, which means that the Holy Spirit was a key agent in bringing about the Scriptures, just like the Holy Spirit was a key agent in bringing about Jesus' virgin birth. And um, for those who are unfamiliar, remember that um, as Christians, we think of the scriptures uh, similarly as we think of Jesus himself, fully divine and fully human. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that we're worshiping scriptures being fully divine. It means that it has, uh, it's divinely inspired. It comes from God. It originates with God, but his participation through the inspiration of human writers, there's a fully human aspect to the book of scripture, yet a fully divine aspect. Just like with right Christology, we say that Jesus is fully God, yet fully human. So in any case, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the book, and the book is all about Jesus. Notice that the book isn't all about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire the writers of Scripture to write about him. He inspired them to write about Jesus, which tells us that the Trinity is other-referential. They're always referring to the other. We're going to come across a concept here in our little lesson that's called perichoresis, which means mutual indwelling or rotation. And the idea is that they're, they're, self, they're, they're mutually indwelling. You can't talk about one without the other. And so we can't talk about the Holy Spirit and who he is without first discussing the Trinity because the Trinity is foundational for his very ontology or his being or his existence. So how do we understand the Trinity? Uh, and we're going to establish that first and then talk about the Holy Spirit's unique role within, right? Unity with distinction, the unity of the Trinity, one God, distinction, three persons. So first we need to affirm that the Old Testament 
is adamant about monotheism, that there are not multiple deities, there's one God. And this is certainly an uh, argument against the prevalent worldview in which Israel, ancient Israel lived. All of Israel's neighbors believed in a multitude of deities. Where God revealed himself to Israel through Moses, and of course to Abraham before that, but we're focusing more on Israel through Mo- to, Mo- to Moses, <laughs> to Israel through Moses, revealed himself as one. And this is summarized in what's famously known as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that word Shema is just a Hebrew word that means hear because it's the first word of the verse. So the Old Testament is absolutely adamant about the fact that there's only one God. Monotheism, not polytheism and not pantheism. Polytheism, multiple deities. Pantheism, God is all. No, this is transcendent monotheism. God reveals that he is entirely independent from the creation. He's transcendent and he is one. So as Old Testament affirming believers, and Jesus would have obviously been an Old Testament guy as a Jewish man, we affirm the oneness of God. God is one. He is, and it's not tritheism, it's not three gods, it's not polytheism, it's one God. So how do we get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do we get there? Well, Jesus shows up in the New Testament, as is recorded in the New Testament, and he claims divinity. And his claims about himself are vindicated through his resurrection. If Jesus showed up and said all the things he said about being God, and he did it so in a subtle way, and we're not going to go through all those text passages because it's a study on the Holy Spirit, not a Christological study. If he said all those things before Abraham was I am, and said things like, I see my father working on the Sabbath, therefore I work, and they picked up stones to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, none of that would be true if he hadn't risen from the dead. His claims would not have been vindicated about himself. Christians should not follow Jesus if they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, because otherwise his claims about himself are wrong, and he's a false prophet at best. But because of his resurrection, his claims about himself are are verified. He is in this unique category. And in the New Testament, we find believers worshiping Jesus. His disciples worshiped him. After he uh, calmed the storm, he got in the boat, and they said, my Lord, No, they said, uh, what did they say? Uh, I forget the the precise language. (laughs) Excuse me. But they, after Jesus gets in the boat, they, oh, they worship him. It just says they bow and they worship him. And Jesus doesn't say, don't do that, which happens in scripture a couple times where humans worship angels and the angels say, don't do that. That's reserved for God alone. And his disciples worship him and he allows them to do it after he calms the storm. And then, uh, after his resurrection, he appears to Thomas. Thomas puts his hand in his side, and he, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, right? So we have all these different uh, ways of affirming uh, the New Testament, showing us that Jesus is God, one of which they're worshiping Jesus. Well, this presents a bit of a dilemma then, because the Old Testament says there's one God, yet they're worshiping Jesus. So we have to work out, the church had to work this out. And the key is here, and this is why we talked about doctrine as a source of information for us and how to understand the Holy Spirit. The early church worked out with the help of the Holy Spirit how to talk rightly about Jesus as divine, yet without undermining Old Testament monotheism. And so they came up with three terms to talk about the divinity of Christ in such a way that didn't undermine or contradict Old Testament monotheism. The way This is how God can be one and Jesus can be divine. And so um, the book walks through these three terms, and I'll do this really quickly. 
The first is homo usian, uh, meaning same nature or same essence. Same nature, same essence. Homo, same, usian, nature or essence. Now, there's a whole mountain of history behind this word. We don't, this is an introduction. We're not going to get into that. But essentially, they said that Jesus and the Holy Spirit both are homo usian with the Father. They're the same nature as the Father. So why this word? Well, there were other options. They said, well, what is, what is Jesus exactly in terms of his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit? What, what is his nature? Well, we could say he's heterousian, meaning of a different nature. But the problem with that is if they're worshiping Jesus, who's of a different nature than the divine nature, then that's polytheism. That means that they're wa- worshiping something that's that has that doesn't have the divine nature because he has a different nature, and that is refuted. That's prohibited in the Old Testament. No polytheism. So Jesus can't be of a different nature than the Father because if he is, then their worship of Jesus as God is their worship of him as something other than divinity. And so the other option is homoousion, which means similar nature. They said, is it possible that we could say that Jesus is of a similar nature of the Father, but not quite the same? <clears throat> He's not homo, but homo. He's not the same. And they said, no, well, that's not an option. Because if we say <clears throat> that, sorry, I'm having a bit of an allergy thing going on here. If we say that Jesus is of a similar nature with the Father, but not a full nature, full, the full divine nature of the Father, then we're affirming polytheism polytheism. There's multiple de- deities. So hetero would be idolatry. We're worshiping something other than what's God. Homoi is polytheism. We have two different kinds of deity, two different divine beings that have similar but different natures. Well, the Old Testament prohibits polytheism as well. So it's not hetero and it's not homoi, so it must be homo, same nature. Jesus has the same nature as the Father. He is equally divine as the Father is divine. Now, how, how do we, though, uphold this without getting into tritheism or polytheism? Well, let's move on to our next term, and that's hypostasis. <clears throat> hypostasis. Hypostasis in English um, is usually translated person and or personhood. And as I get into the book, what it means to be a person in the ancient world, the way that they were employing this term, the church was, is different than how we understand personhood uh, today. Usually we understand personhood as the self, um, and without getting too deeply theological or philosophical, when we think about who we are as persons today in a modern uh, 2023 context, we think of all different aspects of our being. We think about the fact that um, our nationality, our genders, our sexuality, um, our socioeconomic status, maybe our race, um, it's all these different things that make up who we are that make us unique. Um, these different, this is what we refer to or what um, secularism refers to as intersectionality. So who are you? Well, uh, Matt Ayers, as a person, I am an American white male of a middle class income. And and we could go on into further areas. I, I am an academic. I am a, <clears throat> a preacher. I am a Christian. There's all these different pieces that come into play that make up the person of who I am. Well, this is different than how the ancient world understood it. Not altogether different, but there's a key difference in that um, the way that they, the church employed this word hypostasis was that um, personhood wasn't determined by those things, but rather determined by our relationships with other persons. So in other words, 
who I am is not American. It's not middle class. It's not at, at the heart of who I am. At the heart of who I am is the subtotal of the vast network of relationships that I have. So I am a dad. I am a son. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a colleague. I'm a coworker. It's all determined by my relationships with other people. And this is a really key concept for understanding how God can be one, yet three. One God, three persons. And what we say because of this notion behind hypostasis is that God doesn't have relationships. God is relationship. So Jesus's very ontology, his very being, is determined by his relationship with the Father. He cannot exist outside of his relationship with the Father. His divinity is dependent upon his relationship with the Father, because what it means to be divine is to be a person, a hypostasis. And the same would be true of the Father and the Spirit. <coughs> so, um, the, God doesn't have relationships. God is relationship. What constitutes the divine being is mutual relationship. And the same is true of us because we're made in God's image. This is why it's important for us to understand because who we are is determined by the relationships that we have. It's not our, as Sigmund Freud would suggest, our sexuality that determines who we are. It's not at the core of our being. What's at the core of our being is our relationships with other people, namely our relationship with God himself. And this is a fancy word, reciprocal determination. It's our reciprocating relationships to determine who we are. Um, famous, well, famous among, in my world, a theologian named John Zizioulas wrote a book called Being as Communion. There is no being outside of communion. There is no personhood outside of communion. There is no existence as a person outside of communion. And so this notion of hypostasis, of personhood, and being an ontological uh, community, being as communion, links right up to the last, which is perichoresis, which means mutual indwelling. You cannot have one without the other. If one falls away, the whole thing falls apart. And we say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wrapped up in one another. If you lose the Spirit, you lose the one thing that is God, the one person, not the one person, the one essence or nature that is God. If you lose the Son, you lose the whole thing. If you lose the Father, you lose the whole thing. One cannot fall away and the others remain. They are mutually linked. What we say uh, in theological terms, they're in, uh, indivisibly united. They're, indiv they're united in a way that they're not divisible. So they're wrapped up in one another. There's a rotational aspect to them. Um, another way that they've used this wor word in the ancient world is as a dance, perichoresis. It's a dance, a constant rotation, a, 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 a co coordinated um, movement movement of correspondence. You can't have one without the other. Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and so you will be in me as I am in the Father, so on and so forth. You cannot separate us. Um, the, <clears throat> going back to hypostasis for just a moment, it's evident in the fact that Jesus is called the divine son, right? Because you can't be a son without a father, and you can't be a father without a son. How can we call God father if he doesn't have a son? So, <clears throat> now, this is the, the basic... Uh, fundamentals of Trinity, according to orthodoxy. Um, so let's get in. This is the, we're talking about the, the unity here, oneness with distinction. But now let's talk about the distinction for just a moment, specifically with the Holy Spirit. What we, uh, and to talk about the Holy Spirit, we have to start with the Son. So what we say is that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, um, is uh, eternally generated by the Father, eternally 
generated by the Father. So it gets tricky when you say Jesus is a son, because that could suggest that there's a time that he didn't exist, because the Father's existence must, must predate the Son. Well, God has not restricted time and space, and so that can't be. Um, and so what we say is that the Father has always generated the Son. The Son has always been begotten, the eternally begotten Son has always come out of the Father. There's never been a time where it hasn't been. And this eliminates any possibility of subordination uh, or lesser deity, or the, the idea that Jesus is not equal, co-equal with God the Father. Now, I know we're getting into some hairy stuff, uh, but again, what I want to pause and point out, you're going, whoa, this is just all confusing. Well, that's because it's a divine mystery. We're talking about what's at the heart of God himself, which is, that just overflows the bounds of human reason. There's no way for us to completely understand this. This is, this is like a crude drawing that a two or three-year-old would try to do for his mom or dad. You know, this is, that, that's like our version of trying to explain uh, the internal life of the Trinity and how he exists within himself, the imminent Trinity. It's just impossible. And so, of course, it's going to sound confusing and hard to grasp. There is, however, an internal coherence to it. And um, there is an internal coherence to it because the Holy Spirit helps us with these ideas. And so, uh, while on the one hand, it may feel very advanced and very esoteric and maybe elusive, um, there is a coherence to it. Um, but at some point, we do just have to hit the mystery button and, and say our human words are defined or conditioned by our human experiences, and our human experiences are limited, and therefore our words are not going to be adequate to describe the unlimited deity that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So try not to be too discouraged or overwhelmed if you're feeling like this is just, uh, you know, too esoteric to grasp. Well, that's, that's a part of the thing, you know, we're talking about God. This is a, a divine mystery. It's going to be hard to grasp, but we can, um, the Holy Spirit can help us to begin to understand it and describe it with the limited instruments that we have that are our minds and our words. Okay, so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is eternally generated from the Father, eternally begotten by the Father. And we can talk more about that, what, what that means, but we're not going to because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, however, we say eternally, and this is from the Nicene Creed, by the way, eternally proceeds, or excuse me, uh, uh, um, yeah, eternally proceeds from the Father. Now you're going, well, what's the difference between eternal generation of the Son, son and the eternal processions of the Spirit? Well, uh, we're not exactly sure, and that's where the mystery button comes in. We just know that they're distinct, and this is the language that uh, the church sensed under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was the best way to describe it, that the, the Father eternally breathes forth the Spirit. Now, again, even that metaphor is tricky, because breath is impersonal, or the Holy Spirit is a person. So the Father, the Son etern is eternally generated from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And by the way, the Western Church would add, proceeds from the Father and the Son. We're not going to get into the filioque controversy here, because um, that's just later on down the road. It's not necessary for an introduction. Eternally proceeds from the Father, and I like to add through the Son rather than and the Son. And there's a little bit more about that in the book. Um, so... Um, why do, what's the difference between eternal processions and eternal generation? Um, they're just different languages to mark off their distinctiveness. Now, theologians have tried, <coughs> and, and with some success, to try to get into more technical detail about what it means to eternally proceed and how the Spirit is different in terms of uh, his God the Father being the fountainhead of divinity for the Spirit and the Son and the distinctions between them. And some have talked about, for example, the Spirit creates the space in which the, the word is manifest. And think of the, the God the Father, again, metaphors break down, but speaking and words are carried forth by breath. You can't have words without 
the one speaking it, and the word can't come without the breath carrying it into existence. Uh, but again, even that is really difficult because we're not suggesting that Jesus didn't exist before um, at, at any time. You know, Jesus is eternally preexistent. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And likewise, the Spirit is co-eternal uh, with the Father and the Son. So uh, we get into some real, real thick weeds when we try to really talk about in technical detail what it means to eternally proceed from the Father and how that's different than eternally proceed or ter- being eternally generated in terms of the Son. So let me talk about one more thing with regard to uh, the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, and that is the notion of thirdness. We say the Father is the first person of the Trinity, the Son is the second, and the Holy Spirit the third. And what does that mean? And why do we use that language? Well, first, let me talk about why we don't use that language. Those numbers, those ordinal numbers, first, second, third, uh, don't, are not intended to imply um, inferiority, that the third is inferior from the first, or any kind of chrono- chronological uh, reality of the Father being first in existence, the Son being second, and the Holy Spirit being third. No, no, no. Co-eternal, uh, co-equal, indivisibly united. They've all always existed. They all worship. They all uh, deserve our worship and glory as God, one God, three persons. So why third, if not in, if not subordination or uh, qu- lesser quality? <clears throat> well, a couple reasons. Uh, the the one real simple reason is that Jesus says in the Great Commission, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit," and He puts them in that order. And so. Um, we just follow his lead. The Holy Spirit's listed third. Um, but a more complicated reason, and it's not impossibly complicated, is that in terms of the redemptive story of salvation, uh, that God redeems humanity and the creation, um, the Spirit comes to the church after the work of the Son. And we're talking about the fact that Pentecost follows Calvary and the resurrection, or the incarnation, incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus goes to the Father and then sends us the Spirit. So in terms of chronological order with regard to God's uh, work in the world in relationship to us in the church, the Holy Spirit is the third to come. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not working in the old, of course. The Holy Spirit's the one who brings Jesus into existence. The Holy Spirit's the one who empowers Jesus's ministry. He's the one who raises Jesus from the dead. So the Holy Spirit's fully active, and, and this is wrapped up in a whole other notion of the unity of God, that every act of God involves uh, every person within the Trinity. Um, But in terms of uh, the Holy Spirit's relationship to the church, um, the era of the Holy Spirit, let's call it, comes after the redeeming work of the Son. And so he comes third to us. So that's why third. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Great Commission, and uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us after his work is finished. So that's the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Um, Probably the most technically theological chapter, um, but hopefully you found some helpfulness in that. Um, In the next section, we're going to talk about the divinity of the Holy Spirit and look at some Bible verses that attest to the fact that he is divine and where we find that. We'll talk about the incommunicable attributes of God and how the Holy Spirit has those attributes. Eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, uh, omnipotence, um, so on and so forth. The fact that the Holy Spirit gives life, which is a part of his omnipotence. So, and, uh, scripture describes the Holy Spirit with terms that are only used, or let's say notions that only apply to God, the incommunicable attributes of God. So until next time, this is Seminary Unboxed, Matt Ayers, your host, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. 